So let's go now. I'm so excited about our Advent series, and we're going to begin with Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Isaiah 9. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's the very word of God. Amen. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that your word is true. We thank you that you do not leave us to walk in darkness, but you have given us the light of your word And you have given us more than that. You've given us your living word, the very person of Jesus Christ. And you've given the very spirit of the light that we might, from our very hearts and minds, understand your agenda in the world. And we might have power through the gospel to be the people of God, to be the people of the light. Oh, God, forgive us for not being so, especially lately. And I pray that you would come this morning, that you would give us understanding, that you would help us to think new thoughts, that you would help us to see your gospel so differently, maybe, that we believe it for the first time or we understand its power in a very practical way to be the church in a very dark and disjointed and divided world. Lord Jesus, we exalt you and we pray that you would come teach us now by your spirit through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The message of Isaiah is clear and relevant because the message says this. It says that gloom dawns on the people of God when they look to earthly kings to do what only God can do for them. When the people of God demand a king, an earthly king, who will be the hope of the people of God, who will bring them the peace that only God can, who the church looks to to be the answer and the deliverance that only God can be for the people of God, gloom comes. And it's in this context that this light is dawning. The gloom and the darkness is directly associated to the people of God misplacing their trust and faith from God to earthly kings. Now, I know this morning it's going to be hard 
to relate this to your own life. Uh, you're probably going to have to use a lot of strength of imagination for it to be relevant to you because you've never done anything like this. Uh, that should be really funny to you right now. <laughs> as I studied this passage, all I could think was, oh my. I mean, as I even broadened this passage out, chapter 8, chapter 7, chapter 6, and then I just broadened it out to the entirety of the Word of God, this is the message of the Bible. God's people are always looking for earthly deliverance when deliverance only comes through the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so this morning, what I want us to see is how practically Jesus is your light. How practically, this isn't just a sentimental message that, that you know we kind of sit back and listen to and hear during the Advent season. But this is the most practical message and the practical, uh, bringing practical answers to where we live today, especially in light of the last election and our response to it. So let's go to work. The first thing that we've got to see is that Jesus as king is your light. It's only when Jesus is your king that he is really your light. Again, the whole message of the Bible, the, the reason that we have so much trouble finishing the Old Testament is it's the same story over and over again. The people cry out for leadership. The people cry out for a king. God gives them a king. He's not good enough. They start complaining again. God judges them. Then they start asking for a king again. And then he get, It's just over and over. Then he takes them into exile. Assyria is about to take over the people of God and take them in exile uh, in, in the book of Isaiah. That's the, the most current threat. I mean, it's this ongoing theme. And in the midst of that... The prophecy of Isaiah is that one will come, a child will be born, who will be heir to the throne of heaven, and upon his shoulders the government will rest. And as we think about this, this is not just a message for religious people. This indeed is a message for the world. Because every generation and every people, every tribe, every language, every tongue is bound by this common desire to be led by a good king, to have good government, to have someone reign that can bring shalom. And that's a Jewish concept. And what shalom basically means is the social, national, economic, physical, emotional, mental condition or, or atmosphere that allows for human flourishing. That's shalom. It's what we want. It's what we want our president to do for us, our elected officials, to just give us an environment where we can flourish. Don't stand in our way. Don't work against us. Bring righteousness and justice for the oppressed. Bring good, not evil. Bring peace, not violence, right? That's what we all want. We disagree on how to get there. But what we read here is that the only way to ultimately get there is through the promised king, the promised child who will reign on his throne as the everlasting God, as the mighty God, the everlasting father and the prince of peace. I mean, if you listen to the words of, that, that Whitney sang a minute ago, come thou long expected Jesus, bring deliverance, bring joy. And that's precisely what the gospel Promises, And it's what every human being wants. It's what every citizen wants. 
And so this longing is not Republican, it's not Democrat, it's not capitalistic, it's not socialistic. This is the common desire of every human being. Give us a context where we can work and see the product of our labor. Give us a context where we can marry and have children and not have to worry about horrible education or violence or hunger Give us a context that we can just do what we've been created to do. We can create art. We can create music. We can uh, uh, further our education. We can um, um, do science. We can do everything under the authority of God and under his good pleasure without the hindrance of, of bad leadership and the hindrance of evil dictators. That's what we want. It's what we all want. And so what we must see is that this is not just a little message for the church during Christmas. This is the hope of the world. This is relevant for every single individual. That a king would come and reign on a throne and bring peace. So much so that we want to obey this king. That we want to do his bidding. Because what he does is wonderful. He is a wonderful counselor. Every president that goes, and it's happening right now, what does the president do? He picks his counselors. Well, Jesus is a wonderful counselor because he is infinite in wisdom and he is infinite in power. So he doesn't just have good ideas. He has good ideas that he can carry out, that he can enforce. You see how beautiful the reign of God is, the reign of of this child, of this light, and the very reason that he is a light. You may not believe the Christian message this morning. and I don't know what, somebody drug you here, you're in town for Thanksgiving, all right, we'll go to church. But don't you want this to be true? Don't you want there to be a king that would bring shalom so that you can live your life and you can worship? I mean, that's what we want. We want somebody that we can just adore. Jesus becomes our light. When he becomes our kingly hope. So the question is, is he your kingly hope? Notice, I hadn't even talked about forgiveness of sins. I hadn't even talked about any of the things that we typically associate with the gospel. I'm just talking about a king who comes and reigns supremely. And he's good. And he wants your flourishing. Human flourishing. That's the hope of the gospel, is a king who comes. And the way that we are reconciled to this king is through faith in Jesus as the forgiveness of sins and as our righteousness. And we'll get there in a minute. So is Jesus your king? If he's not, he's not your light. If he is, is he your light? It's a question. Because secondly, Jesus brings light through relationship with himself. Now, I'm going to try to break this down as practically as I possibly can, because I want you to know that since election night, I have worked as hard as I could possibly work to think through the division that's not out there in the world, but that is right here at downtown church. There are relationships that have been, I hope not permanently, but seriously damaged because of Facebook posts, because of conversations had, because there have been relationships seriously damaged. And everything that I seem to try to say or do makes things worse. <laughs> we, we talked the other day as a session, we talked about what, 
what can we do? Maybe we ought to have a panel and, and let's bring both. And then we finally realized if we do that, we'll blow this place apart. We can't even do that. We can't even talk about it. And so here's my attempt <laughs> to, to talk about it, um, at least from the pulpit, because it is utterly relevant and utterly the very essence of this passage. How do we walk in the light? Psalm 36, 9. I've been just ruminating on this passage. It says, in your light, we see light. Think about that. In your light, we see light. So it's only in the light of God that we can see clearly. It's only in his light, not the light of politics, not the light of education, not the light of CNN, not the light of Fox News. Not the light. It's only in your light that we see light. And yet, what is the light? The light is a person. John chapter 1 and verse 5 and then 9 through 13. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, not just the church. See, this is the hope of the world. This is a universal reality. The light, the, the, uh, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He, look at that. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. Jesus is the light in whom we as Christians can rightly, in a way that produces unity, peace, and love, find the light of God. It's in a living relationship with him and, and the first reality has to be, have you begun that living relationship? And if you have not, or if you have, then let me ask you this. Are you walking in that living relationship? As I thought about the political divide and the issues in our country, and I thought about what it means to walk in the light of Christ, I think the best illustration from the Bible that I could come up with this week was the issue of circumcision in the church in Galatia and in the New Testament. You see, the church in Galatia was a multi-ethnic church. There were both Jews and Gentiles. And in the world, they had nothing to do with one another. They hated each other. In fact, a Jew had uh, so manipulated the law of God, and that's what you had to do, um, to the point that if they saw a Gentile who was dying on the side of the road, their Jewish tradition and, and law, if you will, allowed them just to pass by and let them die. I mean, they despised one another. They could not marry each other. They, I mean, just on and on and on. They were enemies. And yet, when, the Jew, when Jesus came and, and the gospel began to be preached, the Jews were converted. Some Jews were converted, but also the Gentiles converted. And Paul did not say, okay, we've got to have a Jewish church and a, you know, a Jewish Christian church and a Gentile Christian church. There's just one church. And so you've got the, 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 um, the, these two groups coming together, living in, in, um, unity in the church. However, there was an issue that was, uh, fa- that, that they faced that was threatening to divide the church, and it was the issue of circumcision. And it is, I've got to do a lot of work to even help you understand why that was a big deal. 
Because we're going, really? That was their prop man. They are so ancient and, you know, we're so, we've progressed so far, you know, much further away from that. No, we really haven't. But the issue of circumcision was huge because uh, the Jews who grew up in Jewish families, I mean, saw and, and witnessed this over and over and over and over and over again, that on, eight, that on the eighth day when a, when a son was born, he was circumcised, and that was the evidence that he was set apart to be a follower of Yahweh. And so when they became Christians, it was, it was inconceivable that a Gentile didn't have to be circumcised. But a Gentile didn't grow up being circumcised. And so they were like, what? So we've got to become Jews to be good Christians? I don't think so. And th- this was such a debate that even Paul and Barnabas were butting heads, and they had to go to Jerusalem. And in Acts 15, the elders in Jerusalem had to, had to render an, a, a decision. I mean, it was, it was very divisive. But in the middle of that, Paul writes to the churches in Galatia, and he gives them the answer. He, he, he addresses the reality that they are on the brink of self-destruction. In chapter 5, in verse 15, we read, If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. Do you realize that in that day, the issue was not the world killing the church. The issue was the church killing the church. <laughs> the issue was infighting. The problem wasn't out there. The problem was right here. And I think we can relate to this. In a multi-ethnic church and in a, a very diverse church, we have people that are all over the spectrum politically. And, and, and that has the power, if you will, if we let it, to utterly divide us or at least bring real damage to us as it already has. And, and this is exactly what was going on in the church in Galatia. And, and what does Paul do? The first thing that he does is he writes in chapter 1 and he says, Guys, this is not, the issue is not some side issue, but he writes this. I'm astonished that you so quickly, um, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Whoa. Whoa. The division in the church is evidence that the people have turned to a false gospel. This is a gospel issue. This is the very, this is the very heart and essence of Christianity. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. What, what we're reading here and what we see throughout the book of Galatians is that the division in the church is evidence enough that people are believing and operating from a, a different gospel than the gospel of Christ. And I want you to know that that's happened to all of us. It's the, it's the bent of my heart. It's the bent of your heart. And yet the fruit of it is not love. But the fruit of it in chapter 5 verse 20 is enmity, strife. Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions. That has nothing to do with the Spirit of Christ. It has nothing to do. It's not the fruit of the gospel. It's the fruit of our flesh. Have any of you been there? I've been there. I guarantee you. I have been there. I've been judging. Well, how do we get out of it? How do we get out of it? Because what is at stake really is the gospel. Because what we understand from the scriptures is that God is not just interested in individual salvation. He's interested in this, his body, the church, being the church. 
And the essence of the church, being the church, is that we love each other. I had somebody come up after uh, my first sermon, and it was a great conversation. Um, And they said, are you telling me that I should love Hitler? And what she was really saying is, are you telling me that I should love Trump? Because I know that's where she is politically. And I said, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. That doesn't mean you have to embrace everything. That that doesn't mean you don't want justice. It, It means, though, that you've got to love because here's the reality. The difference between every other message is that every other message enables you to love those that love you. But the gospel is power to help you love your enemy. That's what's so radical about it. And that's why it's such a travesty when we don't do that. When we lower our, our, our faith to the gospel of the world and we don't show forth the glory of Christ by dying to self and loving those that we would naturally hate. And, and what's more even beautiful is this, is that the gospel, it, the, the road to unity in the church is not everybody believing and agreeing upon the, 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 the right presidential candidate. But, the, but we can have utterly different answers and solutions for this country and still live as brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the power of the gospel. And that's what the world should stand back and go, wait a minute, I don't understand that. Because every other church I know, they're either voting Democrat or Republican. I've never seen Democrats and love it, especially in this election season. Do you see the potential for the light to shine to this world? But for it to shine to the world, something has to be more important to us. And it must be the gospel. And so Paul walks through the gospel in Galatians. And let's do that now. Chapter 2, verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. You see that? We are Republicans by birth and not Democrats. We are Democrats by birth and not... I mean, that's exactly what's... We are. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not those sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by being Republican or Democrat, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So also, uh, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Here is what kills us. We take one element. We say, I'm going to vote pro-life or we say, I'm going to vote pro-justice. And we that becomes our gospel but it becomes the grounds upon which and the law upon which we judge everybody else. And do you see, it only has power to divide. It doesn't have power to unite. The only message that unites is the reality that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in fact, that is a curse. That's what he says in chapter 3. He keeps going. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. You see, God is not just about justice, and he's not just pro-life. He's a pro-life justice God. (laughs) So what do you do now? Who do I vote for then? Exactly. Our hope is not here. And that should concern us. It should grieve us. But our hope is God, because he's both pro-life and he's pro-justice. It's what he's all about. So the law doesn't justify us. It just becomes... That which leads us to the justifier. Let me say that again. 
The law doesn't justify us. Being Democrat or Republican can't justify us. It can if we just stay in our Republican camp and our Democratic camp or our Libertarian. I'm sorry, you Libertarians. I'm leaving you out. Uh, Independents, whoever you are, you know. You've got great peace when you're with your own people. But you can't be together. How many people's Thanksgiving blew up because of this? I'm not, don't, not a show of hands, all right? Um, had some interesting moments in mind. So, um, speaking out of, uh, out of, uh, common experience here. Um, and so the law, when we look to it, here's what Paul is saying. If you look to one aspect of the law to make yourself feel good about you and bad about others, then you better take all the law. Because you can't just pick and choose. Okay, I'm going to take this one and I'm going to feel good and righteous before God. No. God says if this is how you want to relate to me, if it's through the law, if it's being right through how you voted or didn't vote, then you better take all my law because now you're saying you want to be judged by the law. And I promise you, nobody here wants to be judged by the law. It's a curse. That's why it's a curse. Why? Because the law is bad? No, because we are bad. Because when you put God's... Ultimate desire of righteousness, when you put his holiness up here, we were singing of God's holiness up here, nobody, nobody can even get their toes off the ground toward him because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, no, not one. All of us are lawbreakers. And yet we find one little area where we think we got it, and that's all we lock into And God says, it will kill you. It's a curse. And so what's the way out? Chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. I think that's exactly what he's talking about. This whole idea of trying to be justified before God based on what we do. Oh, I'm circumcised. Well, I'm not circumcised. You know, whatever it is, both sides thinking they're right. That's elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. What? To redeem those who were under law, to obey it. Do you understand? God just didn't die for your sins. He took all of the holiness, holy standards of God, Jesus Christ in the flesh, and he obeyed it. Heart, mind and spirit, every single ounce of it for you and me. So that we could be declared righteous in his sight. So that I can wake up in the morning and no matter whether I've had my um, um, quiet time. (laughs) I said private time. I don't know what in the world that is. Quiet time or not. Does that mean reading the Bible is not important? No, but it means that that's not the standard upon which God loves me. Whether I blew up at the Thanksgiving table or not. Whether I stopped for the person on the side of the road and help them or not. The, no, I am justified through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that is my confidence. And dear friends, that is freedom. So we'll get to in a more in, in, in just a minute. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those under law so that we might receive adoption as sons. We are all adopted sons and daughters. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but you're a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And so, friends, we are free. We are children. God has not set his standard up here and say, okay, 
How are you doing? Oh, you're, you know, you're doing a little better today. Okay, I'll give a little pat on the head. No. He raised his standard. Jesus met it. And now we have all of the Father's heart. Oh. And so that's why Paul in chapter 5 begins by saying, For freedom Christ has set us free. He set us free from having to, to justify ourselves by a vote cast or a vote not cast. He set us free from all the issues of the world. Stand firm then, therefore, and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery because it's so easy to go back because our hearts want to be justified by how good we are. Look, I, Paul, say that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You were severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, only faith working through love. Do you you get that? The only thing that counts is faith working through love. He is not saying it's unimportant who who wins the presidency. He's not saying it's unimportant. He's not saying all the issues that we struggle with and that we debate are unimportant. What he's saying is they're not uber important. They're not here. Only Jesus is here. And when we try to knock him off to put something else into place, we die and we become slaves again. The only thing that counts is faith working through love. How do you live the Christian life? By believing these two realities. I am worse than Donald Trump. I am worse than Hillary Clinton. I am worse than whoever it is. You can't imagine yourself being worse than. Because that is the only step toward freedom. Because all of your misery, all of your hate, all of your anger... All of our unrest, all of our sleeplessness is directly tied to the reality that I think I'm better than whoever it is. And so the gospel says all have sinned. You are worse, Richard Reeves, than you ever allow yourself to believe. Who in the world are you trying to make yourself look good because of who you voted for or didn't vote for? I'm worse than I allow myself to believe, and yet, simultaneously, I am more loved and accepted in Christ than I've ever dared hope. I am loved and accepted in Christ. That same guy over there that's worse than he can possibly imagine is more loved and accepted in Christ than he can ever dare to hope. I can never grasp how wide and high and deep and long the love of God is for me. But it should be my life to try. Because when those two realities come into play, I am worse than I allow myself to believe. Therefore, I'm humbled. But I am more loved and accepted in Christ than I've ever dared to hope. My, my, my. You've got power. I can forgive people around me. I can be friends with Republicans and Democrats and Libertarians and people that didn't even vote. I can be friends with... um, my, my worst enemy. And I can love them. Why? Because Christ loves me. And if He can love me, I can certainly love people around me. You see it? 
That's the power of the gospel. And there's no other message that can give you that kind of power. And that's what Paul is saying. And so to get the light of the glory of Christ into your life, you've got to think through his gospel in those terms. And that is power to bring hope to those around us. And then thirdly and quickly, Jesus as light will bring peace and he will do so now. Jesus as our light will bring peace and he will do so now. Rachel and I are adding on to our house and it just got to a point this past Monday where we had to move out. And so uh, we packed up our two cars with the clothes that we needed and we went to our, our daughter Ashley's house and her and her husband uh, Nate and um, their two-year-old son Silas. And for the last several nights, I've been sleeping on my two-year-old grandson's bunk beds. And uh, I've got shark sheets and uh, a short bed. And um, that's enough, I'll say. I, I won't say any more at this point. But um, And tomorrow, I think we're going to go to Whitney and Jed. They were sitting there earlier. That's why I'm pointing over there. To Whitney and Jed's house. My oldest daughter and son. Just, we don't want to wear out our welcome, you know. So we're just kind of wandering people for the, probably the next two, two weeks. But, but why is that not a big deal? It's not a big deal because we know that we're going to have a beautiful home and it's coming soon. And that's the hope of the gospel. That, that's the, the prophecies of the Old Testament we're looking forward. And even though Jesus has come, there is a, a present reality and a future reality. There, theologians call it the now and the not yet. Now you know something. You can use that and, and look really smart. You know, the now but the not yet. There are present realities to the, reality, to, the, to the hope that we have in the gospel. Because God has given us the, the, the responsibility and the privilege to live in his light and to be the kingdom to the watching world. That's why we pray. He taught us to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are to be about shalom. We are to be about producing. We should be concerned about all the issues around us, uh, both poverty and, and, and pro-life. I mean, all the issues that encompass you know, this fallen world. We should embrace that and we should seek to be a community that gives the world a taste of the shalom of God. But there ain't no church that can possibly be the shalom that we will one day experience in the coming kingdom. And so there's a now as we love each other, as we get over ourselves and we humble ourselves and we love across. Yes, even Trump uh, voters loving, you know, Hillary voters and Hillary voters. I mean, we can do it now. But in heaven, the unity and the community will be beyond our wildest dreams. And the shalom that we'll have. Yes, we can be doctors and we, we, we can seek healing and we can, you know, we can feed people and seek to eliminate poverty around us and, and give cold water to those that are thirsty. But one day, someday, there will not be any more thirsting. One day, there will be no more hunger. One day, there will... Do you see it? So Paul tells the church about a coming government. In verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. 
I would have finally be over all of this waiting, all of this bickering, all of this president and that president, this dictator, that dictator. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. Those two coming together. Justice and righteousness. That beautiful. From this time forth and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So dear friend, are you a Christian this morning? Are you living in the light? Are you, are you a, a, a man or woman of peace? Or are you holding your ground and not willing to love somebody that voted different than you? Are you a man or woman of mercy and kindness and justice and compassion and love? Are you a person of principle? And If you're not a Christian today, you've got a lot of reason to throw a lot of darts at the Christians around you. But ultimately, you've got to wrestle with the reality. Are you a man or woman of the light? Have you accepted this mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, the one upon whom the government will rest on his shoulders? Are you dealing with the reality of this universal king who has come once in weakness but will come again in might and power? If not, then it's your responsibility. Nobody around you can do it for you to repent of your arrogance and your pride and simply to say, I want this king too. And I believe he's Jesus. Lord God, we thank you this morning that there is hope in the gospel of Jesus. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the light that has dawned in the gloom and the darkness of this world. And I pray that you would work powerfully in us as believers to live as children of the light, loving our neighbor as we love ourselves and loving you with all of our heart, our mind, our soul, our strength. Make downtown church a haven for the hurting and the broken. Make downtown church a haven for those that don't know. Father, make us a community that embraces the weak, that opposes the proud, and that calls all men and women to repentance and faith in Christ. Oh God, would you do that to get glory for yourself, that the fame of Jesus might spread throughout our neighborhoods downtown and midtown and beyond, even unto the nations. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.